said Esther. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so I want to start to, um, by showing you a painting, a picture. Um, so I think uh, hopefully David will show you this first picture on my PowerPoint. Some of you may have seen this picture before, some may never have seen it. I'm sorry it's not bigger on the screen. Um, <laughs> it would be lovely if you could see it in full size. Um, but, um, but so I apologize for that, but hopefully you can see it all right on whatever screen you're looking at. So I just want to give you a few seconds to look at this picture. And I deliberately chose a picture that could be looked at from different perspectives. So you might be looking at it through different filters. Some of you might be looking at the colours or the brush strokes. Some of you might be thinking about the meaning of the painting. What does it mean? Some of you might be thinking about what time period it's been painted in or who painted it. Some of you might know. Um, some might be thinking about what was in the painter's mind when he painted it. Um, and perhaps who are the people in the painting? What does it represent? Um, what does the painting sort of mean? So I just want to give you just a couple of seconds to just put your first thought, thoughts about the painting into the chat, just one word sort of answers, just the kind of what, what words come to mind when you see this painting. Um, and it doesn't really matter kind of what they are, I'm just looking for, you know, the fact that probably we'll see different perspectives um, as we look at this painting. So um, just a couple of seconds, any sort of words that come to mind as you see this painting. So Mia's put Paris, 1800, so you're definitely looking at the context. Uh, Hannah, Parisian, street cafe, people socialising and talking. Oh, Claudine, the dark end of the street where nobody goes. Oh, that's quite interesting. Uh, Jonathan, um, I think Annette and Malcolm at Jonathan Hughes, their son. So Annette says, if only we were there. <laughs> uh, scary, dark street, vibrant, being with friends. So it makes us think about, you know, perhaps what we miss. Sharon, I'd like to be there. Karen, welcoming light. The Atterwell separation, interesting. Steve, dark and haunting. Bill, vibrant colours, lovely sky. Um, and the Miles is relaxation. Isn't that interesting? You know, what a range of thoughts um, from one picture and um, such a range of thoughts. <laughs> yes, nobody's socially distancing. That's what I thought when I first saw the picture was, you know, everybody's very close together. Um, but it's just interesting, isn't it, how we, you know, we see the same thing and yet um, we see different things in that picture. Yes, the styles that say, I love the sky. I love, yes, I, I love the sky too. Um, so some of you might know that this is a Van Gogh um, and Vincent Van Gogh and it's called Cafe Terrace at Night. Um, and actually, I'll leave you to Google this if you're interested. But there is um, some thoughts, a theory that it might actually be a picture of Jesus, this picture. Um, but the white figure in the middle uh, of the cafe um, could be a representation of Jesus, that sort of waiter figure. Um, and there are 12 people around that waiter figure, kind of almost representing the 12 disciples. And apparently, I've not looked really hard, but apparently there are lots of um, crosses in the picture. There's even a cross on the window just above 
possibly that the figure of Jesus's head. So I'll leave you to Google that. Um, yes, he, he said it was the Last Supper um, of the disciples of Jesus. So I'll leave you to Google that because it's just fascinating, perhaps the hidden meaning between behind this picture. So um, as I say, I just wanted to introduce that as a way of, if we can take that off, David, now, thank you. I just wanted to introduce that as a way of thinking about um, uh, different perspectives on a story. Um, and um, uh, Bill almost did my sermon for me just then. <laughs> I was thinking, how much more is he going to say? <laughs> Um, so um, I, what I want to do is focus on the two people in the passage encountering Jesus and the two perspectives and two responses to who Jesus was. And then at the end, I'll get you to think about who do you most identify with in the story and why that is. Um, and just as a side note, this story is very similar to one told in the other Gospels, um, but this one has a quite a different meaning. Um, and Luke often majors on love, the theme of love and forgiveness through the Gospel. And so you'll see as we go through that this story in particular in Luke focuses on God's love and forgiveness. So the first character in the in the in the story in the passage is the Pharisee, a man of religious standing who opens up his house and hospitality to Jesus. The Pharisee was probably not opposed to Jesus. There were rumors that Jesus was a prophet and the Pharisee was probably curious to see for himself. Who is this man that everybody's talking about? Is he who he says he is? And he invites him to dinner in his house. And in those days, a house was generally open, people could walk in, there was not locked doors as we have now. And um, he was probably interested in what Jesus had to say, but he was probably watching every move, perhaps suspicious about whether the claims he was talking about were true. The second character is the woman. We are told that she lived a sinful life and there is speculation about what her background is, but we are not told um, you know, what we don't know is, is, is whether or not she came specifically to see Jesus, but it does feel like that she was prepared, you know, she came prepared, she brought this alabaster jar of perfume, so we think that she did come prepared, and again, she must have heard about his reputation, and something inside her wanted to respond to him, we think, as she walked into the house. What's quite interesting is that the house that she came into, she was the uninvited guest in the story. She was not supposed to be there, and yet she does something very unexpected and very unusual as a woman for that day and age. And she must have had courage to do this. So as she comes in, as the woman comes in, and we assume to anoint Jesus' head with oil, with a jar that she brought with her, it seems that she's overcome with emotion and starts weeping. And when I was reading up about this passage, they said it probably wouldn't be quiet weeping. It'd probably be wailing, you know, it'd be really loud wailing. And she wouldn't have been embarrassed about this. You know, what we probably can see is that it was probably a natural reaction upon seeing Jesus. And I'm imagining perhaps seeing something in his eyes about love and acceptance for her. Jesus would have been reclining on the floor with his feet exposed on the floor and her tears would have fallen on his feet. And she would have, you know, suddenly realized that she needed to mop up those tears and she would have taken down her hair, which again would have been taboo in that time and wiped his feet with her hair. And she would then have poured the oil on his feet and kissed them. Now we are let into the Pharisee's thoughts as the woman does this. So the Pharisee is thinking, well, if Jesus is a prophet, he would know who is touching him. 
he would know what kind of woman she is, a sinner. If he's a true prophet, he would know the background of this woman and who she is and the implication that he would expose this. And Jesus reads his thoughts and instead of explaining himself, uses a parable to show truth within this situation. And we know Jesus often uses parables in life to explain ideas using everyday stories from the world around him and to get people to think about things from a different perspective. Jesus then gets the Pharisees' attention by saying, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, that would certainly get my attention. It would get yours, I would have thought, if somebody says to you directly, Bernice, I have something to tell you. You know, it's telling, it's getting um, that person's attention. So Jesus was deliberately wanting to get Simon's attention, the Pharisee. And Jesus tells the story that were two men who owned money to a moneylender. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. So one owned 10 times as much as the other one. Neither had the money back to pay him back, so they cancelled the debts of both. And he asked them, which of them will love him more? And an important thing to note is that Jesus often does ask questions to us. Myself and George attended a Zoom course last week um, by Agape on sharing our faith. And we were reminded of the power of questions, not just to be able to share our story and testimony, but also to ask questions as Jesus often did in response to questions he was asked. He might say, sorry, some of the questions we were sort of thinking about were, well, why are you asking that question? What do you think about that question? What difference do you think could be made if that was the case? If God was here now, what would you ask him? What do you believe about prayer? Do you ever pray? Questions make us think and reflect and perhaps get to the heart of why we were asking the question. So the question in the passage, going back to the passage, is that both people owned him money, owed him money, but they had their debt, their debt cancelled. So which one would love the person more? The person who was forgiven the 500 denarii or the 50? Now, the more, more generous the gift, the more grateful we are for that gift. Have you ever had an unexpected gift, something you weren't expecting, something that was completely out of the ordinary for a friend or a loved one? At the moment on Facebook, there are some really lovely videos of children who were surprised by a, an unexpected gift, often a puppy at the moment. And they're just so overwhelmed by, with emotion at this beautiful puppy that they've got that they can't speak, they're overwhelmed. They, they, they often, you know, are just, you know, they, they can't cope with what is actually happening to them. And so when Simon is asked this direct question, he can't wriggle out of it, he has to answer. And his answer is very telling. He starts by saying, I suppose. So what do we think when people start um, answers with, I suppose? I think it's often an answer that's said grudgingly. In other words, I see what you're getting at and I don't like the way that this is going. So Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus answers, you have judged correctly. He then goes on to some truth telling about the inner motivations of the woman and Simon. And he compares what has happened to Jesus since he walked into that house on that day. He said, you did not wash my feet as custom detects, 
in a land where your feet get very dusty, but you wet them with, but she wet them with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss of welcome, which would happen as usual when people enter different people's houses, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did anoint, not anoint my head with oil, but she poured perfume on my feet. It was the very best that she had to offer. And we wonder about that woman who was still probably so overwhelmed by love and thankfulness, but almost showed up that though Simon was the host, his offerings were actually very small in comparison. And then that kind of final nail in the coffin. She has loved much and her sins are forgiven. If you have been forgiven little, you love little. The woman was so overwhelmed by love, she wanted to express that in love to the one who was able to forgive sins. Her response was not a response to ensure her forgiveness of sins, but a response of someone who recognised how much she was forgiven and by whom. This has been a real challenge to me this week. How much do I recognise I need a saviour? Do I recognise the true weight of all my sin? Do I know how much God loves me, that he offers me forgiveness for all of that? And how much do I love God in response? How much do I express that? How much do I offer in worship and love that recognition of the state of being free? Would I be like Simon the Pharisee and offer the minimum and not fully comprehend the fullness of God's love for me? Or would I be like the woman completely overwhelmed by the love I feel and the thankfulness for all that is given to me and respond in a completely unconventional way because I don't care what people think in that moment. All I can do is pour out my heart. And as for Simon the Pharisee, it shows up the true state of his heart. It answers that first question Simon has. Remember that first question he had, is Jesus a prophet? Yes, he saw into Simon's heart what he was asking when he asked that original question. And he showed he knew what this woman was and what her background was. And he knows the heart of the woman as well. And he's able to show truth in that situation. He is indeed a prophet. But he is also so much more than that. And I think that's just a reminder for us that God does see into our hearts and minds. There is actually another player in the story today. And somebody that doesn't get perhaps a mention until the end, but they would have been watching everything that had been going on. And that's the crowd who had been gathered who would also be in that room, who had been watching what was going on and would be starting to mutter at the end, who is this who even forgives sins? Because that would mean this man is claiming to be divine. He's claiming that he can forgive her sins. And this is important as Jesus wants to make sure that everybody there recognizes that it's not the actions of the woman that brings about her forgiveness, but it is her faith 
he says at the end, your faith um, has made, uh, has saved you. So it is her belief in God that he loves her, accepts her and forgives her, which is what brings about the forgiveness of sins. She shows him extravagant worship. So what does my extravagant worship look like today? A big question and will look different for all of us, especially perhaps for us thinkers and reflectors out there. But I think perhaps it is a more emotional response to the love of God for us. How do we grasp the immensity of God's love for us? Do we dwell on this? Do we take time to let it soak in? Do we, how do we respond to this? When was the last time you experienced a wave of love so overwhelming that you had to stop and respond? I've asked a few people to think about this and, and I've had two responses that I'm going to share today. Unfortunately, um, both Amy and Joe couldn't be with us this morning for different reasons, but um, they're just going to share their thoughts. But I just want to give um, people a chance to add in anything. Um, and so, you know, once I've said um, just these couple of thoughts from Amy and Joe, um, if anybody else wants to just add a thought about what extravagant worship means to them, um, something that God's perhaps, you know, it would really value, um, you know, other people really value by sharing that um, today. And then please do, I'll, I'll give an opportunity to do that. But let me just share Amy and Joe's. Amy says, when I think about extravagant worship, I think about spontaneous acts. The phrase reckless abandon comes to mind. For me, this would be singing with enthusiasm at church, knowing that it's more important to be all in than it is to produce a beautiful sound. I'm singing for God, not for human approval. And then Joe, to be honest, I don't feel that extravagance in worship is something that comes naturally to me. So this passage brings quite a challenge. I'm naturally more reserved and measured in my responses to people and things, but we can't let our worship of God be measured. That's a horrifying thought. True, honouring, pleasing, outward expressions of worship come from our inward valuing of God above everything else, our realising and treasuring of his greatness. As we do this, our, ex our outward responses get less constrained by thoughts about what others think, about appearances, etc., because God matters more to us. Would anybody else just like to add anything either on the chat? Um, it might be that, um, that there's something that just occurs to you on the chat, or just wave if you'd like to just speak and um, unmute and just add in. Yeah, Bill, do you want to just add in? Just unmute. <laughs> Yeah, it just occurred to me that um, <clears throat> one form of extravagant worship, and I'm not pretending I'm good at this, uh, is about how we talk to people we meet in our everyday and what we talk to them about, um, and perhaps having courage to to talk about our faith and God's love for them. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, when I talk about extravagant worship, it is not, you know, we know worship is our everyday. It's our 24-7. It's our relationship with God in our everyday. So, you know... Um, 
I was thinking for me, extravagant worship sometimes is, is just walking in a beautiful place, um, recognizing God's love through the creation that he's created and what that means to me. So, you know, I think, you know, it's anything really in our days, weeks, months, our interactions that reminds us of how enormous God's love is for, for me. Anybody else just want to add in? Just wave if you do. I can't see if anybody else, if Mark or David. Oh, yes, Hannah. Um, Maggie, sorry. <laughs> it's good you've got Hannah on the screen. Sorry. Can you unmute? Just add in Mag uh, Maggie. I think we can learn maybe sometimes from children. I think later yeah. on at the end of the service, Helen's got a photo where Hannah has been chalking on our pavement outside our house. Um, God is with you always. Um, and I think my, my first thought was like, Ugh! and then I thought, actually, that's just amazing. She's just there writing that, something she simply believes. And how extravagant is that? Whereas they don't hold back as children, whereas adults, we're just maybe more constrained about what people might say, what people might think. Um, and like I said, I think there's a photo coming up later um, but she also went round and did it outside a friend's house as well, much to my um, amusement. And it's like, yeah, there's these little messages around, around the neighbourhood from Hannah. Um, and I think, you know, how many of us would actually have the courage to get out some chalk yeah. and write that kind of thing on our front doorsteps? Yeah, you know? absolutely. No, absolutely, Maggie. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, lovely example. And as you say, not at all worried about, you know, what people might think, but just writing and wanting to share that that God loves all. Any others? Just wave if you want to add anything. Yeah, um, Ali, Ali Styles. I'm just on mute. Um, I just think about every time Rich goes out, you can hear Bethany crying. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. One Rich goes out the door for five seconds and then Boo's face when he comes back in and she just runs up and gives him the biggest hug. Like, you love your daddy, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not coming face, but she no, does. Like, she runs up like he's been away for like days and days. Yes. I just think about how that's kind of like God's reaction to us yes. when we actually meet with him. And I think, you know, if we responded in that way back, that would just be, yeah, that's what just yeah that's beautiful thank you Ali yes um it, there's some other videos on Facebook I'm terrible when I get distracted it's terrible but of um you know dads or mums who've been in the army or you know away for six months and then the kids see them and they run up to them and just the joy on their faces of seeing their mum or dad again is just beautiful it makes me cry <laughs> even though I don't know these people you know just that overwhelming emotion um is just beautiful Thank you, Ali. Anybody else just before we round up? <clears throat> just wave if you do. The Pharisee or the woman. Do you know the fullness of God's love for you and the forgiveness that is on offer to you? And what is your response to this? Is it limited? Is it limited by time? Is it limited by distractions? Is it something that you give at the end of everything else? The extravagant grace that is available in this story is available to Simon, to the women, 
to the woman, sorry, and to the crowd, it's on offer to all. Jesus saw through the polish of the Pharisee and saw the emotions of the heart of the woman in comparison. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace said, I am a great sinner and Christ a true savior. So I just wanted to finish with a poem, um, just something I found online about God's love. And, uh, and then uh, we'll sort of finish at the end of this. So perhaps just um, you can read or hear as I read it through, um, but um, perhaps just sort of focus on God at the moment, focus on his love, and perhaps just get a bit of peace and stillness. It's quite hard sometimes to get that peace um, in our lives, but um, let's just kind of hear and connect with him now. God is love. Its definition, its defining, before creation's word, uttered, hovered, breathed potential into humanity's one flesh, God was love. God is love, faintly echoed in his reflection, Hagar and Ishmael, Jacob and Rebecca, Naomi and Ruth, David and Jonathan, within our grasp, limited, partial, yet gently coaxed, nurtured and nourished by the devoted three. God is love, incarnated in dependency and vulnerability, completing our potential, life and love in all its fullness, fleshed out, exposed, experienced in life, freely given, consummated, glorified in death, confirmed, vindicated, released in resurrection. God is love, eternally united in purpose, nature and being, seeking, saving, embracing, empowering, weeping, giving, preferring, serving, responding, through that final day when death and decay cease and all resurrections heirs assemble, fully experiencing, perfectly knowing God is love. <laughs>